Sounds and welcome, you're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication and podcast devoted to alternative and spiritual travel, history and culture from a Muslim perspective. Join us while we talk to writers, historians, artists, as well as a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Assalamu alaikum, Zara here. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, Ali and I speak to Tariq Hussain. Tariq is a travel writer who focuses specifically on Muslim heritage and works for a number of publications, including Lonely Planet. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. You can find us on Twitter as S Footsteps and everywhere else as Sacred Footsteps. So this episode is actually long overdue because... Um, Tariq was one of Sacred Footsteps' very first contributors, which people may not be aware of. Um, but other than that, Tariq, tell us a bit about yourself um, and a bit about your work for people who may not be familiar with it. Yeah, so I'm a travel writer and an author who tends to specialise in the Muslim heritage and um I'm also a cultural consultant who developed Britain's first Muslim heritage trails. But I think you've brought me on here because I most recently authored the Lonely Planet Guide to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I think there's actually so much we could talk to you about because they're, um, like you said, you're involved with the Muslim heritage as well, which I think we should do on another episode. Um, but yeah, like you said, for this episode specifically, we're talking about Saudi Arabia, um, which is very timely seeing it, that they've introduced this new tourist visa as well, which we we'll talk about a bit later. Um, but as a Lonely Planet author, um, tell us a bit about your involvement with this new Saudi Arabia guidebook. Yes, yeah, so um, I'm probably one of the only Muslim travel writers in the Lonely Planet pool of authors. And so when the update um, for Saudi Arabia came around, naturally it made sense that Lonely Planet would send me out there. So I spent <clears throat> nearly two months um, traveling solo across the kingdom Um basically updating the content in order for it to be put into the new book which coincidentally came out this month as well called Oman UAE and Arabian Peninsula and I'm one of four authors in there and I cover bah um, sorry both Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. So I mean you said you've updated the guidebook so I'll mm -hmm. be honest I actually didn't know there was a Saudi Arabia Lonely Planet guidebook um, yeah. but I'm I guessing, don't think many people do. <laughs> yeah but I, I'm just curious what would have even been in then who it was kind of aimed at so um, one of the reasons that a lot of people don't know is because the title of the guidebook isn't saudi arabia you know the right. fact that um saudi arabia has just opened up to tourism is part of the reason you know lonely planet or any guidebook company for that matter is not going to go and invest you know thousands and thousands of pounds in um writing content for a place that no traveler can get to yeah of course so um um, traditionally, it's been a kind of very tiny section of the title I just mentioned, Oman, UAE and Arabian Peninsula. And this is now the sixth edition. And it is the most comprehensive coverage of the country, because up till now, um, even Lonely Planet has struggled to get anybody into Saudi Arabia and onto the ground. So they tended to kind of farm out the work to journalists and writers already on the ground there. Right. And um, if you look at the fifth edition, the previous one, and compare it to what I've just done, you'll see that a lot of the country simply wasn't covered in the past. Right. So for yourself personally, like this is actually a really big achievement in the sense that I'm sure, you know, other regions, um, they're already covered so well by Lonely Planet that people, new authors would go in and kind of, you know, they'd only be updating what's already there. But for yourself, I mean, I imagine there wasn't a lot to begin with. So you've, you know, your work will obviously have an impact. Yeah, I mean, I, if I'm honest, you know what, I was feeling really quite overwhelmed when I got the when I got the gig. Um, you know, I had a period of just under two months. And um, when I looked at the existing content, there were vast regions of the country that hadn't been covered at all, um, namely the south, um, the northwest um, and, and uh, various other parts. And so I knew that I would be putting some places literally on the lonely planet map for the first time right. and in that respect in that respect i kind of accepted that you know i would be laying the foundations for further updates in the future so it's by no means comprehensive and i'm not suggesting for one minute that the guide covers everything anybody should go and see but i feel like we've covered 
at least the biggest highlights and we've covered the main kind of sites that any traveller going to Saudi Arabia would want to see. Right. So before I bring Ali into the conversation as well, tell us then what are the main sites that a tourist can go and see other than obviously other than Makkah and Medina? Well, quite frankly, a, to- um, a tourist can't go and see Makkah and Medina if they're not Muslim. So, right, you know, exactly. they're, they're, yeah, this was this was a funny conversation I had with um, the presenter on Five Live recently because he came into the discussion saying, you know, um, I'd love to go and see Makkah and Medina. And I had to point out <laughs> to him that he probably won't be able to see that. And then I and then like you, he wanted to know what the what the sites were. And, and I guess one of the best places to start is with the fact that um, Saudi Arabia is actually home to five UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And and the one that grabs the headlines most often is known as the Second Petra. And this is Maidan Saleh, which is essentially one of the uh, main Nabataean towns, um, trading posts, similar to Petra in Jordan. So that's one of the places. Then you've got another prehistoric site, uh, sorry, then you've got a key prehistoric site around the area called Jubba, which covers several kilometers of rocks that have prehistoric rock art literally all over these, um, you know, rock faces. Um, so that's two. Uh, and and there's um, two old towns in Jeddah and Riyadh. And then finally, you've got this huge oasis. I think it's the biggest oasis in the world in Al-Hufuf. So they're like five of the World Heritage Sites. But, um, you know, Saudi Arabia is Saudi Arabia is absolutely huge, and I could go on and on and on about you know the kind of things that everybody needs to go and see. But I think one of the places and one of the aspects of travel in Saudi Arabia that's really underrepresented isn't on the land; it's offshore in the waters. Because of course Saudi Arabia has nearly two thousand kilometers of Red Sea coastline, and beneath that Red Sea is a phenomenal world of coral reef and sea life oh, which wow. up, which up until now almost nobody has dived you know in yeah. contrast to the other side of the red sea in egypt which is dived regularly by tourists so this is another untapped um, asset in my opinion this is interesting because it's making me question why why now you know I, obviously we know there's a vision that the new king has um, for the kingdom and what they want to do but mm-hmm. It's just interesting. It doesn't seem like to me they need the money, um, but maybe I guess this is diversifying their economy and, and the future. So the, so my question to you was going to be around the, the new tourist visa that's just come in. Mm. And now I think there's an e-visa alternative as well for people who want to go for pilgrimage, um, I think for for the smaller pilgrimage of Umrah. So, so what has changed with the visa that you think will have the largest impact? Will those sites be exploited now for tourism? Will the investment now throughout the kingdom what what do you think that visas essentially i guess going to unroll on onto the kingdom well um the, the the bottom line is there was no tourist visa up until now ali and you know um as muslims we have a slightly kind of warped um take on saudi arabia because they can't stop us going into saudi arabia <laughs> purely because of course we've always had the right as pilgrims now when we go into Saudi Arabia, we only ever go to Makkah and Medina because that's the only places we're allowed. So up until now, it's never occurred to us that, you know, most other people around the world can't actually enter Saudi Arabia except on business visas or as migrant workers. So this, for the first time, opens up the entire country, including for Muslims, um, to be able to visit literally any corner of it. And, you so- know, so previously Sorry. we couldn't. So we couldn't go previously as a on a pilgrimage visa to these places. Is that right? That's right. So if if you ever got an Umrah visa, or of course if you had the Hajj visa, what happens is, as most pilgrims will tell you, your passport gets taken by your agent when you arrive, and then you are chaperoned um, between three cities: um, Jeddah, because that's normally the port of arrival, but you're not allowed to go out and wander around in Jeddah. And then, of course, it's Makkah and Medina, and you are literally restricted, or sorry, you were literally restricted to those two cities, because in the eyes of Saudi Arabia, that's why you've come into the country. And so, for the first time now. Muslims and non-Muslims can buy a visa for for something equivalent to, I think, £65. It takes about seven minutes, according to the website, to sign up. And you can go to Umrah as many times as you want throughout the year now. And, of course, once you finish your Umrah, if you want to, you can pop over to Riyadh. You can pop into Jeddah. You can go to Dammam. You can pretty much go anywhere you want now. 
without sounding like a promotion of, of the, the new e-visa scheme and, and how, how wonderful it sounds. From a programmage mm-hmm. perspective, it makes so much more sense because mm-hmm. I was speaking to someone recently and I said, well, if I wanted to technically, or literally I could plan my trip today and be in Medina tomorrow or be in Mecca tomorrow if the flights are available. That's that's changed things you know, so much. I guess if you look back before the before mm-hmm. the Saudi times, you could have done that before these restrictions were put in place. Was previously you just Indeed. show up as long as you, I guess you know, you had transportation. But now, after almost a hundred years, Muslims can finally do what we've been doing since the beginning. Yeah, I mean, you know, now, like you say, you could conceivably be in Medina tomorrow, be in Makkah tomorrow, or be in Riyadh tomorrow. You don't have to go to these um, holy cities straight away because you, you're you just grabbing a tourist visa to come into the country. Um, what it does, of course, is for a lot of um, um, pilgrim agents, they've completely been cut out of the equation now. And um, from from a kind of um, pilgrim perspective, the other the other bonus is that you don't have to keep paying for an Umrah visa throughout the year anymore. Because historically, if you wanted to go to Umrah, you had to pay for a visa each and every time you went there. Whereas now you can buy the visa, it will be valid for a whole year. And in that year, you can go as many times as you want. And a number of my friends have already pointed out that they've already got their Saudi visa and they're planning to pop over to Umrah as and when they please. And now there's no penalty for going more than once as there used to be. Um, I no, think it was no. a two-year period, which is, which I think sounds revolutionary, but I feel like it should have been done a long time ago. Just to clarify, this still is not open to all pilgrims, though, right? People of all nationalities? Um, no, the, the current, you're, you're spot on. Um, the current tourist visa has been made available, um, quote-unquote, to the most... Um, how can I put it? The Well, basically the countries where um, most tourists come from. And that's essentially Europe, North America, China and countries like Japan, because these are the countries where um, a lot of the world's tourism um, revenue comes from. And that's who um, Saudi Arabia is targeting, at least to begin with. So that's for the for the tourist aspect of it from from the e-visa pilgrimage, from the pilgrimage perspective, they've left out essentially if we just be honest about this, most of the Muslim countries, right? right. So you couldn't, every time I've gone to Medina or Mecca, I've noticed the disproportionate amount of Pakistanis and South Asians, but these guys still have to go through the old route. They don't have that privilege of uh, taking the agent out and going out, going as many times as they wish. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, if I'm honest, in, in the last couple of weeks, because of the focus on tourism, I haven't looked into exactly the impact this has on the rest of the world. But if nothing has changed for the rest of the world, then I would imagine, yes, they're still having to go through the traditional routes. It, that would be actually quite interesting to look into, because once all this kind of hype has died down a bit, um, mm-hmm. I would be interested in knowing whether the numbers uh, of pilgrims from the rest of the world, whether they stay the same or if they go down. For sure. So I think everything we've spoken about so far is quite positive if you're a Western pilgrim. Um, but I want to talk a bit about what could potentially be a downside. Um, I, I think Alif, you could tell us a bit about this ad campaign that's gone, that's kind of um, been used to promote this new visa and also the influencer campaign too, because it's something you've been posting about a lot on Instagram. Sure. Have you seen the ad campaign? Well, there's been a few different, well, if you go to the page Saudi Arabia, um, they've been promoting for a couple of months now, um, but they released an, a video the other day, and the focus, essentially, the the two the two individuals in the focus or in focus are two women, one on a horse, uh, fully covered, and one in a I think a Ferrari uh, or yeah. a Porsche, um, yes. and that and that so it's just playing on. To me, it just looks like a um, you know really high budget blockbuster movie. Uh, showing something which just really doesn't doesn't just work. It just feels so odd. Um, so I I kind of mocked them for that. I deconstructed how they've taken something that we know isn't true. That a that women are still being prosecuted. There's more people in prison who try to get um, you know the right for women to drive. Yet they're promoting a campaign based on mobility, which is two women who are alone without any male chaperones, doing things that just don't really seem like it's. It's ever going to happen, mm-hmm. um, but so so that's I guess that's the context that Zara is 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 mm-hmm. mentioning. But then after that, we've been looking at um, the um, uh, influencers who've been invited into the kingdom. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, on on that ad campaign, I think we need to look at again 
who the tourist visas have been opened up to. And essentially, the target audience, as we've said right at the beginning of this podcast, are not Muslims. You know, the target audience is not going to be the people who are coming in for Umrah now as freely as they want. And most of them, as you've rightly pointed out, are going to be Muslims from the West. So this is a ad campaign that is meant to tap into the insecurities, in my opinion, that most Westerners have about the kingdom. And I think this is one, probably one of the key reasons that they chose to go with um, a solo woman in a car and another solo woman in a horse. And you, you, you know, you very rightly pointed out. I mean, I, I went to every, almost every corner of the kingdom um, towards the end of 2018, and I never once saw a scene like that at all. So, quite why, quite why that's been used is, um, you know, we're, we're speculating at the moment as to the reasons why it's been used. But we should point out that laws have changed concerning women. In fact, I would argue in the last couple of years, you know, since um, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has essentially taken control of the country, the, the, the laws concerning women have changed dramatically by Saudi standards. And um, you said, you know, there's a woman traveling solo um, and she's driving. Now, these are two of the laws, headline laws that have changed. You know, Saudi women can now travel solo, as can women coming into Saudi Arabia. It's been made clear as part of this um, tourism visa announcement that any woman coming into Saudi Arabia for a woman no longer needs a chaperone, whereas historically they did. Um, it's the same for Saudi women. They no longer need a chaperone. Secondly, you know, um, we know from the headlines that were made um, last year that um, Saudi women are now actually allowed to drive. And I, I recall um, stepping into um, Jeddah for the first time after nearly a decade and, um, you know, being quite blown away by the fact that, you know, there were Saudi women driving around um, in the streets of Jeddah. But this is it's not like you're going to turn up in Saudi Arabia and see, um, you know, local women driving everywhere because just, you know, you, we have to remember that just simply changing a law does not mean you can overturn um, cultural norms. You know, just just because Saudi women are allowed to drive doesn't mean that they necessarily feel totally comfortable doing it straight away. Mm. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean society as a whole is ready for that straight away. As bizarre as that sounds to people like you and I who, you know, we, we, we've grown up in a, in, a, in a part of the world where this is completely normalized. But actually, um, for, for, for a cultural shift on that scale, in, in a country like Saudi Arabia, right. it's still going to take a little while. So I, I, I see that video as kind of maybe the aspirational side right. of, of where things are going. And I think to go with it is something like um, Saudi Arabia, we're only just beginning. <laughs> I feel yes, like I, I mean, something along them lines. That yes. scene is more like the end point, no? <laughs> mm, mm. Do, you, yes. do you know what that reminds me of? Have you guys seen that? Uh, have you seen Terminator 2 where there's a canal scene and um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is in a. Do you know? Do you know what scene I'm talking about? It's this filmed exactly like that. There's a car chase okay. scene. Yeah. Um, yes. In a canal in yes, I think yes, it's, yes, La, yes. it's La Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I saw that ad mm-hmm. and I just was just laughing <laughs> at the parody because yes. it feels like they hired someone who does action movies to do that. But, you know. So in terms of in terms of what you said, I have a few comments because I I agree with you. I think it's one thing to have aspirations, and I think it's one thing to understand who the target audience is. Mm-hmm. My my biggest concerns have been that although the law has changed, the laws have never really been that strict. The interpretation has been strict or the yeah. people enforcing it have been strict. So mm-hmm. if you look at the recent change now, right? So you, you mentioned you've seen women driving. So one thing that I've covered in my stories is the, the continued prosecution or imprisonment of certain Saudi women mm-hmm. who remain behind prison, who were advocates of driving. Mm-hmm. If the kingdom is changing and now they're promoting this image, I think we need to call out the hypocrisy because yeah, whilst definitely. women are being imprisoned, mm-hmm. They're showing they're showing to the Western audience that you can drive and they can do technically. Now, I falsely, I think, made a statement on my Instagram story saying that you can now legally uh, remove head, headgear. If you're a woman, you no longer have to wear a hijab or wear a, a niqab. And someone correctly pointed out it was actually never law in Saudi. Right. That That for me is revolutionary because I've been quite a few times, people that I know, you know, everyone... We've always assumed the only two countries mm-hmm. that I understood was Saudi and Iran, which mm-hmm. has the the enforcement. Now, in, in Iran, it is a law. So if in Saudi, it's never been a law, but it's been enforced by the religious police. Mm-hmm. My concerns are that they're advertising something that might not be the law, but in the end, it comes down to who's enforcing it. Mm-hmm. And if you're dividing now the Western tourist 
on a tourist visa to the Muslim or the local, um, how can you a, immediately tell who's who? Are you are you now going to have double standards for women who um, who may be Muslim of the Muslim persuasion, and then you may have the the white the European. Um, we're not assuming whites are not Muslim, but assuming you have non-Muslim tourists on a, on a tourist visa, it's the implementation of it what concerns me. And and secondly, if you've looked at the uh, um, penalties they've they put in place for, I guess I, you can call it, I think, adequate or so mannerism they're expecting mm-hmm. tourists to adhere to. Yeah. There's a PDF which has some really interesting fines for people who may step out of line on a tourist visa. And mm-hmm. these remind me of the early days of, of Dubai and when Dubai was opening up the tourism. Mm-hmm. And they, they try to balance the Islamic elements to tourism. It just mm-hmm. doesn't work sometimes. Mm-hmm. And the interpretation of those laws essentially will be left to the religious police who are who are on the streets. Um, and I think it's we'll get stories, you know, which which are which which might be quite hilarious to us, but might be quite shocking to Westerners who think I didn't realize I was breaking the law by playing music at Maghrib mm-hmm. time, but now yep. that that has a fine to it. So mm-hmm. so that all of that just sounds like it's going to be an interesting experiment. Or and I completely understand sure. this is the sure. beginning of something, mm-hmm. um, but the honesty doesn't seem to be there. That if you're showing ads and you're showing Instagrammers who are European. Walking around hotels and and it's only hotels you don't see them around walking around Jeddah. Yeah. Um, mm. You might be pulling people into Saudi thinking they're going to be in Jordan or Dubai, mm. but they mm. might find themselves in sticky situations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I was just asked to write an opinion piece um, for a, a mainstream newspaper, and it's going to come out in. Uh, um, I don't know when this podcast is going out. That's why I'm not naming it. <laughs> but essentially, um, I'm writing an opinion piece for the Metro, and they asked me what the reality is of traveling out there. And you're you're, you're right. You know, if I was to um, watch these Instagram videos from afar, and I'd never been to Saudi Arabia, I would start to think that maybe it's like Jordan, maybe it's like Dubai, and and a lot of my, a lot of the editors who are asking me to do work. Right Right now, they keep making this assumption somehow that Saudi Arabia is just like Dubai. And and therefore, when when people go there, they're going to have a similar experience. But actually, it's very, very different on the ground. You know, there are so many things about Saudi Arabia that are in transition at the moment. You know, this is this is a this is a country that is experiencing nothing short of a kind of cultural and touristic revolution. You know, and when you're on the ground there, you see everything from from the immense um, infrastructure, uh, uh, tourism infrastructure that is being put into place through to these kind of laws that are slowly being um, altered in in some way, shape or form. And in many ways, yes, um, Dubai is often seen as the model that um, Saudi Arabia aspires to. But at the same time, Saudi Arabia is very unique in many ways in that it is home to the two holy cities. And therefore, it is very close to the hearts of many Muslims around the world. And, you know, as the self-proclaimed um, guardians, um, custodians, sorry, I think is the phrase, custodians of the two holy mosques, you know, their responsibility is, I think, a, a far greater responsibility than, say, the rulers of Dubai, who they're very close to, of course. And I have absolutely no doubts that they have been, um, you know, consulting them on 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 how, how to move forward with this. Um, and, you know, coming back to what you're saying as well about will they be making these distinctions, I think we have to remember that Saudi Arabia has always been um, taken in Westerners. Um, it's it's never been a place that Westerners haven't been allowed into as long as they're coming in for work. So even when I was living there, there was a huge non-Muslim expatriate community, you know, or in, in cities like Jeddah and, and Dammam in particular, which, of course, is essentially a Saudi Aramco city in many ways, you know, and feels very, very American down to the um, grid like system of, of the entire city's development. So Saudi Arabia has been used to Westerners for a very, very long time, but it hasn't been used to western tourists if you can see the distinction you see a westerner coming into saudi arabia historically knew exactly what they were letting themselves in for but they were going there to earn money and therefore when in rome do as the romans kind of thing but i think tourists are going to be coming in with a very different viewpoint Uh, i'm sorry a a very different take on things and when they get when they go there they are in for a bit of a shock you know most of them don't realize um at this moment in time that this is a country which will stop five times a day for prayer you know this is a country where restaurants have an entrance for men and another entrance for women you know (laughs) this is a yeah this is a country where the weekends are completely different you know so so there are lots and lots of local um social nuances that that 
the uh, a lot I, I feel like a lot of these um potential tourists aren't yet fully prepared for and and the kind of um media and promotional uh, material that we're talking about doesn't really focus on that at all and and i and and i go back to this thing you know i'm i'm also a media teacher and so i go back to this thing about the 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 products have been designed to um, entice the audience you know and so therefore the content is really all about what they think the audience wants rather than the reality right. you know just to add to that point because we mentioned the buy a few times um, mm -hmm. So back when I lived there, um, this is back in 2009, and although Dubai has a very kind of liberal reputation and, mm -hmm. um, you know, people kind of expect freedom there, right? Um, but even as late as 2009, I remember there were incidents when I lived there of local men, um, just or, and local women actually, kind of just, um, you know, screaming at a tourist for having dressed inappropriately in a mall, um, or in a supermarket or yeah. for showing public affection, things like that, because mm -hmm. they were still, even as late as 2009, they found that really offensive. And if yeah. that's the buy and the buy has that kind of liberal reputation, um, you mentioned earlier that social change takes time. And yes. I feel like we're going to see, you know, dozens and dozens of similar incidents coming from Saudi Arabia, because like you mm. said, tourists are not going to know what to expect. Mm. I, I think we're, um, as Ali pointed out earlier, it's going to be very interesting watching this because this this is a country which is opening its doors for the very first time um, to anyone and everyone, you know. And um, <laughs> my experience most recently is that wh whatever the government wants, the the people are certainly not yet quite prepared for what's about to hit them. And I, and I want to give you a little example of what happened to me while I was out there. Um, so I, I went down to the south, um, the deep south, known as the Asir region, which incidentally is probably my favorite part of Saudi Arabia, other than, you know, where I used to live and that. And the reason for that is it's completely different to any other part of Saudi Arabia. And it's completely different to the, the stereotypes and the cliches of this desert kingdom, because the south is mountainous. It has forests and um, it's got a culture that's very distinct where you've got these wonderful villages clinging to the, you know, cliff edges and um, and the architecture is very different to the Central Arabian Peninsula. Um, and so when I was in the deep south, I found myself in, in a town called Abha, which is the capital of the Asir region. And one evening I was... Um, I was at the main mosque in Abha um, and I went for, I think it was the Isha Salah. And um, after the, um, while I was in the mosque, I, as I always do anywhere, you know, you just sit and you observe and you kind of try and take it all on board. And um, I noticed um, there was this individual who stood up and appeared to have with him a guitar case. So, <laughs> so I kind of noticed this guitar case and I thought, Good Lord, <laughs> what, what on earth is that individual doing with a guitar case here in Saudi Arabia? And um, so I, I got on with the Salah, we finished the Salah, and afterwards I noticed he wrapped the guitar case around him, um, you know, like a kind of quintessential bohemian traveler and, and wandered out of the mosque. And, that, <laughs> and I knew straight away, of course, he wasn't a local. So I approached him and, and engaged him in a conversation. And soon enough, he was joined by another individual who was dressed in a thobe and, and had wrapped um, a scarf around his head. And it was quite apparent that, you know, he it wasn't a... a how can I put it? It wasn't an outfit he was used to wearing, I think is the politest way to put that. So, <laughs> so I, I spoke to both of them um, and I said, oh, how, uh, do you speak English? And, and they did. And I said, oh, where are you guys from? And um, if unless my memory fails me, I think they said they were from Bulgaria, but they had been on the road essentially for five years. And when they were in Oman, um, they'd heard about the new e-visa that was being issued for the very first time attached to the Formula E event, which you may or may not recall, took place towards the end of um, 2018 when um, people like Enrique Iglesias and Jason Derulo were invited to Riyadh and, and, and for the first time, you know, there was this music concert, etc. Oh, yeah, so, 
Yeah, so these particular individuals, amongst several others that I bumped into, had used the opportunity to get the visa and essentially go where the hell they wanted. <laughs> and they found themselves, obviously, down in the deep south in Abha. So we spoke for a while. They asked me what I was doing. I asked them what they were doing. They asked me where I'd been. I asked them where they'd been, et cetera, et cetera. And we were having this conversation. Then we, you know, like, like travelers do, we bid each other farewell, and off they went, and off I went. But unbeknown to both of us, the, the mosque happens to be very close to the royal palace. And um, while we were in conversation, we didn't realize that we, had, we were being watched. I certainly didn't realize. So within a, a, a couple of seconds of me departing from the conversation, um, I was accosted by two gentlemen who, on, you know, on first impressions, I assumed were just two curious individuals because there was a few people who had been standing around kind of um, you know, taken aback by the fact that we were conversing in English. Um, so these two individuals started talking to me and asking me things. And, you know, my Arabic isn't great. They, their, ex their English is non-existent. So it was a very kind of poor conversation. But essentially what they wanted to know is who the other guys were and what they were up to. And um, me being quite naive, I, I kind of went along with this conversation for a while, not realizing who they really were. And it was only, <laughs> it was only when I noticed that whilst one of them was talking to me, Another one was taking a picture of me that I realized that maybe this was not just two gentlemen who were intrigued by my presence. Um, and then um, by this time, um, he, he unable to converse with me in English. He had said to me, oh, if you give me your number, you know, I'll get my friend who speaks English to call you, which is actually quite a normal thing to do in, in, in a place like Saudi, because often, you know, it's very difficult to converse with someone who, who, who doesn't have the same language as you. Um, so it, it suddenly dawned on me that, you know, some, two, two very strange men who by now I had I, worked out were probably secret police now had my number. So I said to them, look, you know, I, I have no idea where these guys are going and I don't really know what you want. But anyway, I'm off now. So so I went back to my hotel. And then what happened is the next day I got another phone call from this guy. And this time he was very irate. And so I was expecting to be able to have a conversation in English by now. And he again spoke to me in Arabic. And I'm saying, so, you know, you told me you're going to get your friend to speak to me. Where, where's your friend? Um, and he kept asking me, who are these guys? Where are they going? Where, wh wh what do they want? Where, who are they? And so I said to him, look, I have absolutely no idea why you keep calling me. I don't know who they are. They're just two travelers. They came in on the Formula EVs. I've told you all of this. Um, but he was getting very, very irate. And um, I was getting very worried now because by now I knew he was police. And having lived in Saudi Arabia, I knew that police, you know, in, 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 in a country like Saudi Arabia have a lot of authority and he could potentially put a block on my visa to leave. And this is just probably a week before I'm about to depart. And it's the last thing I wanted. Um, I'm very fortunate. I've got a lot of friends in Saudi Arabia and one of them happens to be um, a retired policeman. So he, he came to mind straight away. So I said to the gentleman, look, Call me at Maghrib time because I was heading back to Jeddah. I said, call me at Maghrib time and I'll get my friend to speak to you. And so when I got back to Jeddah, I told my friend, my friend spoke to him and, you know, my, my kind of suspicions were correct. It was, in fact, secret police. And they were absolutely terrified about these two random white guys um, who were wandering around their country. They wanted to know who they were, where they were going, etc. And, and, you know, they, they were very worried by the presence of these um, foreigners. Uh, my friend obviously told them, look, you know, um, Tariq has nothing to do with any of this. Leave him alone. He's, he's here for a completely separate um, issue altogether. He doesn't know them personally. Um, and that kind of put the situation um you know to brought the situation to an end for me at least but i think in that example we've got a kind of microcosm of what um saudi arabia is going to be like for a lot of foreigners yeah. and what it's going to be like for saudis to suddenly find all these foreigners um wandering around the country freely um trying to get about into the most obscure and bizarre places so yeah i i think this is going to be a very interesting time for Saudi Arabia. That, that story is quite telling. Um, I, I've had similar experiences in Iran. And and my reading of these events always is, it tells you about the society you're living in or visiting. Because when a society is so suspicious of everybody, mm -hmm. it, just doesn't, it just doesn't help tourism. Because I remember when uh, the sanctions were lifted on Iran, everybody said it's going to be flooded with tourists. People won't know what to do with themselves. It's going to be a nightmare. It never really happened. What you end up getting is you end up getting a certain type of traveler exactly. who, who, who are typically Spot. pretty savvy, 
they know what they're doing um or you get the or you get the one who just goes to the big cities wants the photos for the gram um and they're and the, you know and their friends and followers are like this is amazing i can't believe you went and then they go home so so but anyway i mean that's that was my concern it never happened in iran it may not happen mm. in saudi we'll see so in terms of this um the campaign that zara is talking about you know i'm not I'll, i'll admit firstly i'm not that knowledgeable about the culture and and the rich heritage saudi has um if you look at the hijaz region i can talk about the ottomans i can go f- back further but in terms of i guess the, the native indigenous arabs that go into the south as you mentioned mm-hmm. i don't know much about them so but just based on these promotions um and the advertisements that have been going around and watching um and i use the word white in in, in quotation marks because i think you, i think you've got some arabs too who've gone from from uh, dubai this is the big instagrammers it just seems to be a bit of a mockery on i think what is come to be now known as this um you know this wanderer this this the spirit who's traveling and mm-hmm. discovering ancient ancient ruins of of either giza or um or petra and they seem quite insensitive i mean i've seen advertisements um um sorry i've seen i've seen posts or videos where people are dancing um this turkish this turkish music playing in the background which for, for, for them means no it is quite telling because for them they just don't know the difference but mm. it's it's like it's like trying to promote germany with using french music to yeah. someone who knows it's just it's just quite ridiculous yes and and if you read the comments and i'm i'm a pretty social big social media observer because i like to mm. observe what patterns are happening you you end up getting this this one type of crowd who are now itching to go and say i want to do the exact same thing i need to go to the exact same location i need someone to hold yep. my hand while i walk away from them and take that exact be... p- same picture <laughs> and and if i was and as a muslim i not even as a saudi i'm i'm kind of offended because when i look at the sacredness of that region mm. i'm you know i'm i'm a little bit offended that we are now opening ourselves to the same orientalist you know tropes as i mentioned that we welcomed in other countries like turkey and morocco and and you doesn't bother you so much because it is what it is but when you're inviting this behavior mm. unfiltered behavior and and this is interesting i'm going to connect this to the to the penalties and the, and the adequates that they released a lot of those a lot of that behavior would would fall under new rules they've released which means you can do this as an instagram influencer you may be able to dance and reveal certain parts of your body and and play music and it's fine but you open that up to you know which i don't think will be but a floodgate of white eastern uh or eastern uh travelers you you'll get a pretty sick situation and to me it's just just feels wrong it just feels distasteful it seems cheap and petty and i just don't understand why the kingdom needs to even expose themselves to this level of um um as i said in one of my stories like cosplay dress up as jasmine come in and mm-hmm. and stay in our fashion hotels and then leave yeah i i think you know there's there's a there's a couple of um points here firstly i think it's really interesting like most muslims you know you you've pointed out that you've seen similar stuff take place in turkey in egypt in tunisia and all these other places and and the difference of course is um saudi arabia <coughs> is so significant to every single muslim you know it's one of the reasons why i felt deeply honored to be able to go out there and work on the guidebook for the country because of the fact that this is where our prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam was born this is where he passed on this is where the hajj takes place this is where the two holiest cities are etc etc and this is one of the key reasons why every muslim has seems to have an opinion on this marketing campaign on this new tourism drive and it's something that you know Saudi Arabia obviously is aware of but whether or not how much it particularly cares doesn't seem to come across that's that's the first point that i want to make um the second point is with a lot of this um you know as you pointed out almost um regurgitation of orientalist clichés where um you know turkish music is being played in an arab um landscape and so on and so forth i think you know i, I I I have to be very careful here because as you know I introduce myself as a travel writer so I see myself as an old fashioned bookworm who likes to do his research and know his stuff before he goes to a place or tries to talk about it and I would argue 
that a lot of modern quote unquote bloggers, influencers, it's a very different way to work than it is. They work in a very different way to the old fashioned, you know, travel writer, shall we say. Definitely. Who, definitely. who will have, you know, the, the ones that I've always admired, you know, like the William Dalrymple's of the world, you know, um, and um, the, even the likes of Bill Bryson and that. You know, they'll go to a place, Michael Palin, whatever, they'll go to a place and, and you can sense that they've done their homework. You know, they've done their homework and, 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 and they know that when they're going to a place, they have to be sensitive about certain things. And even then, even then, a lot of them do make errors. Of course they do. You know, everybody is prone to cultural four parts. But I think one of the issues here as well that we need to touch upon is the simple fact that, and, and this is something that I have to contend with on a daily basis, is the simple fact that, you know, when it comes to Muslim culture, Muslim lands and so on, we don't have a tradition within our own community of representing these places ourselves. Where, where are our Muslim travel writers? Where are our, you know, historic Muslim travel? I, I think if I asked you, both of you, to name the the last famous Muslim travel writer, you, you'd probably have to go back a few centuries and and, and find some. I'm gonna I'm gonna name you. You're my pick. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. So that that, that doesn't count because that's cheating. Okay. <laughs> right. But going back, uh, and I, and I'm being honest here, right? Uh, what what I'm trying to get at is the fact that through the medium of travel writing, we have not represented ourselves for so long. Mm. That combined with the issues of that we see when it comes to representation within academia as well. It's inevitable that most of these people and most of these presenters, including ourselves, are going to be products of entrenched Orientalism. I think it's a very good it's a very good point that needs to be addressed because I think what you're doing, A, I think is brilliant. I think your name, for example, was one that should stay in history books because you are doing something we haven't done for a long time. Mm. On but further on that, I think there's an element of not not making excuses because I think as Muslims we often make excuses for our own shortcomings. Is we 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 A, I don't think we have that tradition mm-hmm. of writing and of of creating Occidentalist um, interpretations the way they have done since since the beginning of I guess the days of colonialism. The, in mm. terms of Muslim representation in in travel writing and biography, um, and and just just general depictions of our way of life, we we've been doing this since the beginning. There, there's a few Ottoman uh, uh, names that come to mind, but I can't. Mm. They don't come to my tongue. Well, Evliya Chelebi is probably the biggest one, yeah, and the, and the so, most famous. And he's only just been rediscovered, and you know, tr- um, his uh, his works have been translated. Then, when you start looking across to places like Andalusia, you have Ibn Jubair. Of course, the most yeah. famous is Ibn Battuta. We we do have a tradition. But these but go back it's a been... thousand years. They do go back a thousand years, right? Exactly, so, and that's the point. That's where, the, uh, for me, that's where the problem is. Sorry, but I, cu- I I cut you off there, Ali. Carry on. No, I think I think there's an element of truth to that, but I think there's an also an element of mass. Asking it because if you, I have similar arguments in the academian world where people exactly. say to me, "Well, I need to st- if we if I don't write about uh, Cairo or mm-hmm. certain authors that you've already listed, names of travelers don't talk about Tunisia or Morocco or India, who's going to write about them?" And and I often name them authors that I know do write about them. We just don't talk about them. Mm-hmm. There's you can find many many histories of our of our regions by Muslim authors. I've mm-hmm. one of my favorite books on history of Spain is is by a, by a Pakistani author who wrote in the 80s. Yet mm-hmm. no one's heard about it. We don't yes. promote it. We don't rep- and they don't ever come to Waterstones. They don't go to Amazon.com. Do you think they that's partly? Sorry to cut you off, but I just wanted mm-hmm. to say, do you think that's partly because? Um, we as Muslims kind of crave that validation from non-Muslim authors because even even with all this Saudi stuff, like, you know, so many of the comments are from Muslims who are over the moon that these yes. white influencers have gone to visit mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia. And I mm-hmm. feel like in a way, um, you know, it is our fault. We don't give our authors, the um, you know, the credit that they deserve. We That's don't nice. read their books. We don't read their work. Mm-hmm. Um but sorry we don't value you, it. You can carry on. But yeah, no, we, we don't value it. Exactly. We don't value it. That's the key for me. I don't think, I mean, that the, the author you've, you've named, for example, he was writing in the 80s. It took until the late noughties for Muslims to appreciate the heritage on their doorstep. And most of them still don't. You know, I, as somebody who, you know, scours the Western Hemisphere to, to discuss the, the heritage that lies in plain sight, 
I'm literally sometimes bashing my head against a brick wall trying to convince Muslims that this is important. So it, it, it's it's the discussion we're having is very very complex, and you know I'm I'm trying to just um, bring forth one strand of it, but I do think um, there is a, a a big part of this is the fact that we don't value heritage, our own heritage, in the way that we should. We don't value those working within our own heritage in the way that we should. And as you've rightly pointed out, Ali, we don't have a tradition of people producing this stuff. And if we do have them, they are so, you know, niche and so um, uh, under under appreciated that they have no real impact. Yeah, unfortunately, true. Yeah. I mean, you know, even the fact when I <laughs> even when I kind of try to um, in, in introduce myself in a, as a travel writer or or as somebody involved in um, Muslim heritage. It's very, very difficult to even get a lot of Muslims to understand what that means. You know, um, I think, Zara, you recently came along to our um, to the launch of our uh, Muslim heritage trails. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that it's taken so long for us to go and acknowledge what is such a rich area of British Muslim heritage. I think that's 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 tells you uh, everything you need to know, you know, um, without getting into a long kind of whiny discussion about this. Um, it, it was such hard work. It was so hard to try and get our own community to acknowledge what was going on over there. And one of, and one of the moments in which um, the penny seemed to drop was only when we announced that we had the chairman of Historic England turning up. And then suddenly a lot of, a lot of people within our own community <laughs> were interested. And, and that, I think, goes back to what you were saying, Zara. You know, it's when we see the non-Muslim, the quote-unquote white academic, the white writer, you know, um, to, uh, the, when, when we see those people taking an interest in what we're supposed to be taking an interest in, do we start to look that way? And I think that's really quite sad, but it is what it is right now. And Saudi Arabia clearly recognizes that. And it's one of the reasons why, in its ruthless ambition to attract tourists, it has gone and, you know, um, brought all these influences in for that very reason. You know, um, before we move on to our last point, I just want to say that Muslim Heritage Day in Woking was such a brilliant day. I hope, um, hopefully we'll do an, an episode on it, but really it was an amazing day and it, it felt like the beginning of something actually. Yeah, I've never been to anything like that before. I loved it. Thank you. But you know, um, okay, so you, you said earlier that, you know, Saudi Arabia obviously is so important to, you know, Muslims all over the world. Um, yeah. But... So this is what I wanted to talk about, that kind of paradox that exists, because, you know, Makkah and Medina are incredibly important to Muslims all around the world, but Saudi Arabia kind of isn't, right? right? And over the last few days, you know, I've heard a lot of people kind of lamenting the fact that here they are promoting, um, you know, all these historical sites, many of them are pre-Islamic, um, others are kind of related more to their own, um, you know, the House of Saud's own kind of heritage, right? Yeah, yeah. And yet they've kind of dis actively destroyed so many Islamic sites within the two holy cities. And for many Muslims, you know, th that's kind of unforgivable. And I, I don't I don't see, you know, aside from going on Umrah, I personally don't see many Muslim tourists you know, making the effort to go and visit these sites, if I'm totally honest. Yeah, um, I, I, you know, that will depend on the individual Muslim, I think. You know, there there is a lot of heritage there. And I, I, I'm I, without starting to sound like some kind of, you know, Saudi Arabian PR um, person, <laughs> the, the reality is I've had the privilege and honor of turning up to some of these places and just being completely and utterly blown away. And the reason for that is because up until now, Saudi Arabia literally had absolutely no interest in um, one, promoting these places, and two, as you've rightly pointed out, in the same way that historically Saudi Arabia didn't seem to value the kind of post-first generation heritage in the country, when I say first generation, I mean first generation of Muslims, um, um, when, when it kind of destroyed a lot of the heritage that came afterwards um it didn't it also did not value or want to promote a lot of the heritage it is now actively promoting which isn't islamic so for example maidan saleh 
as as um, as I pointed out earlier, known as the second Petra, which is a great example. Um, when I used to live in Saudi Arabia, nobody knew how to visit that place. And what I mean by that is there was this kind of mythical, obscure permit that could only be issued by some random tiny little office somewhere in Riyadh. And it was deliberately obscure because mm-hmm. we're talking about a generation of Saudis that didn't value that heritage either. And one of the reasons was because um, they saw it as non-Islamic and therefore not of oh, value. Right. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Whereas now, when I turned up to Jubba, there was a visitor center in place and I simply walked up like I would to Stonehenge, bought myself a ticket and wandered in as you would to any place of tourist touristic interest. So I think this is also about the generation of Muhammad bin Salman and how they see these things. And this 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 type of heritage, historically, the non-Islamic ones I'm talking about here, wasn't historically valued, wasn't historically promoted, even within the country. People would talk about a lot of the places that I've mentioned very dismissively when I used to live there. And that was in the early noughties. But now when you go there, um, there is a certain generation in Saudi Arabia that still talks quite dismissively of these places. A good friend of mine was like, well, you know. You, you do know that Maidan Saleh was a place that the Prophet spoke very negatively about. Now, I'm, I'm not a scholar and I don't know the hadith that he was referring to, but apparently um, the Prophet ﷺ made a reference to Maidan Saleh, Hajar, I think it's called, um, in a very negative way and how we should not go and see this place or, uh, or something to that effect. Okay, So there is a generation of people that still see these pagan, these pre-Islamic places of, as of little value. But clearly, there is also a new generation that see it for what it is, i.e. in the same way you and I would go and visit Petra and feel like it doesn't necessarily encroach on our Muslimness, shall we say. There are there is a generation of Saudis who view places like Maidan Saleh and Juba in the same way. I I just want to mention, so with Maidan Saleh. We actually had an article on the site that kind of spoke about that and its, its relationship with Petra and how um, uh, there's this association with it. People think it's the it's the city that was destroyed and it's mentioned in the Quran. So mm-hmm. we kind of mentioned that in an article. And um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know Dr. Samar Dajani. Um, so he no, I, he, I don't know him personally. No. Okay, so he got in touch to say that actually that is kind of disputed. There's actually a lesser known site. I don't even yeah. know if they know the actual location. So that's not. Mm. Um, it's not necessarily Mother Insali, and it's to do with um, a, a, a name being given wrongly or something like that. Right. So I just wanted right. to put that out there. That, that that wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me one bit because um, one of the things that Saudi Arabia we're going to witness in Saudi Arabia as well is that. Saudi Arabia has to first also understand the heritage that it has in its hands, because up until now, for all the reasons I've I've explained, um, they have not explored these things themselves. You know, I I went to a place in in King Abdullah um, University, sorry, not King Abdullah University, King Saud University, I think it is, in in, um, in Riyadh, where they have an antiquities museum, this kind of hidden away little museum that's part of the university. And I was astonished to find that they had unearthed tons and tons of Hellenic statues of Hercules and and various other Greek and Roman gods from from these various um, archaeological sites that they had dug in the 70s. Yet nobody, nobody in the outside world knows about these places, because as I pointed out before, the impression I got when I was living there was that pre-Islamic heritage was something that Saudi Arabia was not going to shout about. I think we're going to see a very different approach now. I mean, yeah, I, I, I actually do hope so, because that period tells us a lot about um, the conditions that kind of made it ripe for, you know, the time of the Prophet Muhammad and everything else, because there were so many trade routes that went through there. So I'd imagine there's so much to uncover. I was just going to say, come, I've got a great tagline for the Saudi um um, tourism board um, come to Saudi for history but not Islamic history because there's not much left of it right if you if you go to Jeddah I think you can still see some some old Ottoman style housing and 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 these are famous you see this all over um, this is what used to be I think there's an old uh, town that's been replicated in, in Jeddah which shows um, the uh, you know the, the typical wooden balcony style there's a name for it it escapes me so- 
Um, I, I can tell you exactly where, where that is, Ali. Sorry to cut you off, just because it's actually my favorite UNESCO World Heritage Site in Saudi Arabia. Um, and it's called Al-Balad, which is essentially the old town. And what these, ha- these houses are actually original. And they do date from the Ottoman period. Um, and they are actually made from the coral taken directly from the Red Sea. So this is actual oh, coral that was used. Because, of course, Saudi Arabia was essentially completely desert. Okay, And it still is. You know, um, uh, and and so in terms of building materials, there wasn't much around. So the, the the locals of Jeddah would dive, retrieve the coral, and use it to build their houses. And then they have these absolutely stunning um, wooden balconies known as mashrabiyas, which are lattice. That's the word. Um, yeah. Lattice so so colors. how so how how did these survive? Because from my reading of Medina and the history of Medina, these essentially you had palaces. What type of palaces? Mansions surrounding the. Um, the Prophet's Masjid, but mm-hmm. now all of these were wiped out. So how did Jada retain that history, but Makkah and Medina didn't? Because I have photos where you can see just incredible, incredible streets, mm-hmm. which would have surrounded. And imagine the view from from those terraces onto the of the Kaaba or or the Prophet's dome. Mm-hmm. How did it, how did that retain in Jada, but nowhere else? So so there are two 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 things that need to be considered here. One is um, a purely logistical purpose, and that was of course. Each and every time they expanded the holy um, mosques and the, the, the boundary of the haram, they needed the space. So that was one of the reasons these places disappeared and they are continuing to disappear. But that's not to say that, you know, you cannot do this tastefully. So if you go to Medina now, for example, you will see that the um, Masjid in Medina is about to expand again. Um, but in the direction that it's expanding in, there are actually three, off the top of my head, I'm trying to remember now, at least three Ottoman mosques still there. One is named um, Abu Bakr Masjid. I think the other is Ali Masjid. And then there is one that has a name which means rainfall because it's connected to um, when the, I think, when the Prophet prayed for rain. Um, now, these expansions are going to happen whilst preserving these mosques. And... So I think from now on, we're going to see because of the but partly because of the criticism that, um, you know, Saudi Arabia has received for the way in which it has um, looked upon heritage in the past, maybe Islamic heritage I'm talking about. And partly because of the new approach, I think any kind of new work is going to try to respect this kind of heritage. In the past, we had situations in, in Jeddah, for example, where there were things that were completely destroyed that you and I as people who, who like these kind of things would really appreciate. So mm-hmm. whilst, whilst the ballad survived and these beautiful buildings which you can walk around and really enjoy, right in the middle there is a masjid called Masjid al-Shafi, which of course is named after the great imam. It's absolutely stunning and it's been very tastefully restored. And it is from the Ottoman era. The, the, you just take one look at the minaret and you know immediately it is an Ottoman era mosque. But there's also lots and lots of Ottoman heritage and pre-Ottoman heritage that has disappeared as well. So nearby, there is a um, there is a cemetery which <clears throat> translates as our mother's cemetery. And, and I'm sure you know what I'm alluding to, because, of course, historically, um, a lot of people believed that um, um, Bibi Hawa mm. or Eve was buried in this cemetery. And um, there are um, pre not pre sort of early Saudi period black and white photos that will show you the huge domed tomb that once sat there and and this was a tomb that um ibn jubair refers to when he travels there in what would have been probably the 13th or 14th century ibn battuta refers to it i think evliya chelebi even refers to it and it was you know for a lot of people it was part of the quote-unquote pilgrimage they would come and they would you know go and pay their respects to eve before they embarked on the um on the actual hajj pilgrimage or the umrah and so these are the kind of places that were ripped down torn down and 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 done away with because of course according to um certain theological positions that you know arguably the saudis take um observing at these places was not deemed as islamically correct and and this is probably the main reason in which or the main reason that that has been cited in the past that a lot of these places were torn down whereas a lot of the buildings that you're referring to and the houses they were still being used by people and they're still being used to this day so they weren't ripped down because people were living in them and and that brings me to my next question because because what i'm when i 
if you read the travels of Ibn Jabir and, and these guys, well, the thing that always captivates the reader is 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 the I guess it's the organic life in the cities. When you went to do pilgrimage or when you visited for whatever reason, you were visiting an actual city, an actual with people mm-hmm. living, doing things, going to libraries, going to madrasas. Because mm-hmm. most of these masjids, even Masjid al Haram, had a library and a madrasa attached to it. It had masjids which were separate but joined. It just felt like it just you you went and you lived in a place and I think you've been Jabir lived there for about eighteen months. Mm-hmm. You couldn't do that now. If you now go to Makkah or Medina you stay in your hotel and you go to the masjid and then what do you do other than that? Mm-hmm. You go to the clock tower, you go to the malls. There, mm-hmm. That life, that organic life, which the Ottomans preserved for so long, is now just completely gone. And I guess we can keep going in circles about what's gone and, and how mm-hmm. it used to be beautiful. But I think I think your point, I think you summarized it, I think, perfectly anyway. It just saddens me, not even just the fact that these these tombs and mausoleums are gone because people argue whether we should even have them. But just the fact that now you can't spend, for example, a year in Medina other than just going to the masjid, which itself would be enough for me. But mm-hmm. I would have loved to have just just the feeling of what Medina was like, the city that our Prophet, the Blessed mm-hmm. Prophet lived in. Yeah. Even if things have changed, it just would be nice to feel like, you know, you're not staying in a hotel because now it just people fly in and they fly out. Mm-hmm. You go for Hajj for 10 days for maybe two weeks and you're done. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I guess there's not even a question, just a thought because... This, this, this for me is is a real tragedy. It's not mm. the mosques that have been destroyed or the mausoleums that have been destroyed. Although, you know, that's a whole different point. It's just these places don't feel like they're living, breathing cities anymore. And the expansion mm. you mentioned is just going to do the same thing. Because, fine, we can go, we can go sit there. But other than that, like you know, these cities were civilizations, or you know, Yathrib or Medina was was where people wanted to go, the urge to go. And now it's just you go for one reason. It's a beautiful reason, but again, I feel like it's just this, this, the soul is lacking in the city outside of the masjid. Mm-hmm. No, I, I hear where you're coming from. And, um, you know, when, like you say, when we read these historic narratives, it's easy to shed a tear for what has been and gone, you know, um, and and we can't change what has happened. But one, one of the one of the nice things now is that. Um, even the places of, of religious significance in, in a lot of these cities are now at least being um, respected, if not actively promoted. So I don't know if you're aware, um, but um, if you go to Medina now, they have this kind of um, city sightseeing bus tour. And um, it's it's something where you buy a yeah, yeah, yeah you buy a hop on hop off ticket. Um, essentially, it's a, it's a red bus, exactly like the ones we have in the UK. <laughs> And and it drives around and 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 it stops at um, various places. And actually, most of the trail on this bus are connected um, to the prophetic story. Nowhere near enough, maybe, to satisfy a lot of us and and what we know has been and gone in the city. But certainly, you have places like Uhud, where um, you can go and see the place in which a lot of the uh, a lot of the prophet's companions were martyred. You can you know wander up onto the onto the actual hill where those. Um, where those uh, um, bow and arrow men that were supposed to stay stationed didn't. Then you can move on to uh, Masjid al Qiblatain, which of course is the is the mosque of of two Qiblas when when the Qibla was switched. Um, then you can go to Kuba, which is the mosque that was the first mosque in built in the Islamic era. So there are um, places of significance now being acknowledged quite widely and quite openly there's also some wonderful museums some are actually some of the better ones are actually private um, museums by private collectors so i went to one called dar al medina i think it's right on the edge near the new haramain train station and inside that um inside that museum which is um the result of a private collector he has an original ottoman era mahmal you know the 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 um, essentially the kind of um, I don't know the English translation, but it was the thing that the um, that the Ottoman caravans would carry from you know whatever city they left at the front um, of the um, Hajj caravan, and inside would normally be the kiswa that is being sent to be changed that particular year. So what I'm what I'm trying to get at is that there is heritage to be found there. There is heritage still, some of it lurking, 
you know, in, in various places. The other place that springs to mind immediately is in Makkah, known as the Museum of the Two Holy Mosques. And when you go inside there, there's tons and tons of, um, not tons, sorry, there's lots of Ottoman heritage, like the original doorway that the Ottomans had on the on the Kaaba, the original um, steps that they would use for people to enter the Kaaba. A lot of these things which have probably been lurking in some, I don't know, someone's garage somewhere for many, many moons, have now been brought out, put into a museum and are no longer, you know, kept from the general public. And so what I'm getting at here is to try and take us away from the dismay and the disappointment and the sadness we feel and say that I believe there is a shift even in this area. And we may start to see more of our Muslim heritage start to appear in places where until now it was discouraged. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. It's, it's good to... Um... End it on it's a good note. note. It's a good note to end on. I have I have one question in case someone else is wondering the same thing. Uh, in that museum you mentioned, and this is mm-hmm. a personal interest of mine, do they have the minbar of Suleiman, the Magnificent, the one that was by the Kaaba for four hundred years, and then it was removed, I think, in the sixties uh, when the mosque was expanded? Do they have that? It's a marble. Minbar. I if if I come across anything that is linked to Suleiman the Magnificent, I tend to remember it, and I do not recall that. So no. <laughs> So I, I'm I only asking because this this thing just vanished from the face of the earth and it was there for 400 years and I've been trying to find it because I really want to go see it. Inshallah, I'm going for Umrah soon, so I want to plan that. But anyway, if yep. we'll, we'll, if you if you find anything, we'll put a link in the in the description or something. No worries. You no know, worries. Um, before we finish off, I just wanted to mention, because we spoke a lot about the Ottoman, um, well, a little, we spoke about uh, some of the existing Ottoman um relics and uh, mm-hmm. architecture that's left. But yeah. So in Jidda, there's also supposedly an Ayyubid minaret that dates to the 13th century. I was just wondering, Tariq, if you came across it. Is so, that um, in the Shafi'i mosque? No, that's not a minaret. That's the, um, it's the, what do you call it? Um, sorry, the, the minaret in the Shafi'i mosque looks distinctly Ottoman in design. Okay. Now, I obviously don't know 100% because this is part of the problem. Whilst these places have been um, restored in that, they haven't gone to the extent of putting up information in the same way you would find in a heritage space, say, in the UK. So this is yet to come. So a lot of the research has to be done at a very primary level. And so I wasn't, given the sheer number of places that I was visiting, I couldn't do that kind of micro research for each place. But what I did find out, um, that may be of interest to listeners, is that the actual mihrab in the Shafi Mosque is allegedly, go, I'm sorry, allegedly goes, dates all the way back to the 7th century. Okay. So um, the mihrab itself, um, parts of it can be uh, apparently traced all the way back to the 7th century. And and this knowledge has only come about because of this shift in the way um, Saudi is beginning to look at its own heritage. But I don't know about the Ayyubid aspect of it, I'm afraid. So my, my supervisor at university, he was um, mm-hmm. a guy called Dr. Jeffrey King, he spent a lot of time uh, teaching in Saudi. So mm-hmm. he taught a lot of um, their own archaeologists um, and all the mm-hmm. rest of it, like train them up. Um, mm-hmm. So he was the one that said this. So I'm I'm not 100 percent sure, but he mentioned so if, that when you walk yep. into the mosque, mm-hmm. you walk down because the floor is still yes um, sunken. So, yeah, so it's that's a sunken an indication. Courtyard. It's an indication of um, how old it is because it's below that's right. street level. Um, that's right. No, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if it was Ayyubid because, of course, when you start looking at Ayyubid, Fatimid, Ottoman, there are overlaps in the architectural style. Right, yeah. And so I wouldn't be surprised at all. And if a professor from a university is saying that, then in all likelihood it's probably true. The courtyard is certainly sunken, and that tells you the historicity of the place. And what I find really, really interesting is when I lived there, right, I lived there for a year in Jeddah, I could not find this mosque because it was constantly boarded up. And now I arrived to find it beautifully restored, open to the public and people praying in it. And I think that really does signify the shift. This was really fascinating, but I actually think that maybe in like a year or two, we should have this discussion again, just to see what (laughs) actually happens. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, no, I think it'll be very interesting to see the kind of headlines that come out, the kind of travelers that go and and the feedback we hear from some of these, um, you know, first um, foreign tourists that turn up in Saudi Arabia. I think that's going to be really, really interesting to watch. 
Thank you so much for listening. All of the links mentioned can be found in our show notes. You can find us on Twitter as S Footsteps and everywhere else on social media as Sacred Footsteps.